0: It was 1991. Most of that whole neighborhood was, there were a lot of vacant lots, there were a lot of encampments in those lots. None of these buildings had running water, either in or out. We didn't have drains, um, no electricity. Yeah, there was a lot of debris in front of almost all the buildings, so you had to do some excavating to even get down there. You'd have to go
1: in through the basement.
0: It was dark. It was cold. It was full of rubble. Um, some spaces had been cleared out as people were like eking out their living spaces. There were a lot of um, Floor joists in place without floors so you could go up three four five stories And see the framework for floors and where the next space should be But you could see all the way down to the first floor.
2: Let's talk about the smells uh, Some kind of bad animals bad that kind of nauseating smell smell of a lot of mold and mildew, a lot of that, a lot of that, plus excrements, dried up ones, some not so dried up ones.
0: It smelled like piss most of the time, because everybody used buckets, and not everybody was super great with their piss buckets. In the, by that winter, we had the thickest clear plastic as a way to um, stay warm. It was really toxic because as the kerosene heater heated the space, the plastic would um, deteriorate. You didn't smell it, you didn't know it, you just knew that it was thinner at the end of the season. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty bad. And also lovely, like quiet.
2: On the higher upper floors, much much nicer of course, just uh, more closer to the air. Pigeons coming in, you know, freely. Also the pigeons had great freedom in those days. They were going in and out, open windows, open roof.
0: So it was a lot like being outside. And at that time it was summer and it was bright. There was uh, um, vacant lots on both sides of us that were full of rubble. One, The building on the south side had burned and there was still all of the um, burned debris there. And... Um, and then just open sky.
2: Liberating, I mean, liberating, that's a good good word. Like, And inviting you to, like, okay, let's get started, you know, and, and yet where do we start?
1: You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. I'm Louise Barry. In this episode, we will look at the history of squatting on New York's Lower East Side and listen to the voices of some of the people who participated. I'll also talk to Amy Starcheski. Amy's recent book, Hours to Lose, is an oral history of the squatters movement and the complex legal process that transformed squats into co ops.
3: So my name is Amy Starcheski. Uh, I co-direct the Oral History Master of Arts program at Columbia University. Um, I'm also a cultural anthropologist and a former squatter. Um, so when I was a teenager, I was really involved in East Coast anarcho-punk scenes um, and was in squatted spaces through that world. Um, ABC No Rio on the Lower East Side was very important to me as a teenager, particularly. Um, And so when I was older and was living in New York City um, and was um, towards the end of college going out in the world, I got involved with a squat in the Bronx um, called Casa del Sol. And um, through that, got to know sort of the New York City and particularly the Lower East Side squatting scene in New York. Um, and then years later, when I was going um, to graduate school and starting a PhD in anthropology, um, you know, I was thinking about what are the questions that are so interesting to me and so hard to answer that I, it's a question that you know I could work on for the next ten years of my life. Um, and some of the questions that were raised by my time at Casa del Sol about um, you know how do people make claims on space in the city? How do people control space? How do people um, you know not necessarily through only a legal um, realm make decisions about who gets to use spaces. And so this was at a point where the squats in the Lower East Side were just starting a few of them to finish this long process of legalizing and becoming limited equity, low income co-ops. So um, with the permission of the people involved, um, I decided to start a project, um, both interviewing people about their past experiences and their current experiences, using some of the archives that were around, um, hanging out and doing participant observation and trying to understand what it was like to go from being a squatter to being a homeowner. I used an oral history approach um, which means um, a couple of things one that the interviews were biographical and structure so I didn't start off saying uh, you know how did you come to squatting I started off saying tell me about where and when you were born and your childhood and your family and your background and your upbringing uh, because I was really trying to understand people's experiences in a broader context
1: so what were some of the conditions that made it possible for the squats to exist in the first place
3: I would say, you know, first that there was a large stock of vacant city-owned buildings. Um, New York City had um, changed their processes, procedures um, for um, dealing with properties that landlords weren't paying or owners weren't paying taxes on um, and made it quicker and easier for the city to take those properties away. Um, So the city started coming to own more and more, you know, what we would now call distressed housing, um, housing that was in poor condition, that wasn't making money. Um, Sometimes that had tenants in it. Sometimes that was empty. Sometimes that had been burned. Um, You know, the city was at a moment when um, capital was really fleeing um, and there wasn't a lot of money especially in poor neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color um, for um, building new housing for maintaining the housing that existed um, and so um, this led also to a crisis of homelessness so there was a moment in the city where there was increasing increasingly visible street homelessness and there was clearly lots of empty buildings that the city owned and um, in the aftermath of the 1970s fiscal crisis didn't have the resources to do anything with, Um, and so that led, I think, to um, a situation where it was easy to make moral claims on those buildings. on behalf of and by people who um, needed housing and and saw these empty spaces. Squatters in New York were also drawing on really deep connections with um, urban squatters, mostly as part of radical space-claiming social movements in Europe. Um, There's a lot of back and forth, and European squatters, um, unlike uh, most sort of political squatters in New York City, um, really fought for their buildings as if they might actually win and be able to keep them. They did a lot more aggressive um, barricading and using direct action to resist eviction, um, and so New York City squatters learned some of those skills, and I think that really enabled them to keep the buildings longer than um, sort of previous generations of political squatters had been able to.
1: We're going to be hearing clips from some of Amy's oral history interviews. In the intro to this episode, we heard Rolando Politi, Famous Chrome, and Maria Dominicus. Coming up, we'll hear from Famous again— as well as the voices of Chris Flambeau, Fly, and Nigel Clayton.
3: And one of the main things I think that these clips show is actually the power of oral history as a research method. Um, that in oral history interviews, we ask people not just to tell us stories about their lives, but to make sense of their experience, um, you know, in dialogue with us in a collaborative way. And you know, all of the analysis and the ideas that I have produced as part of this come from the conversations that I've had with people who have lived through this. It really shows how the process of analyzing social life is not just the province of social scientists and historians and academics. um, And oral history really gives us a chance to amplify the voices of people who are speaking about their own lives um, in really smart ways.
1: We're about to hear an excerpt from an interview with Chris Flambeau.
3: This is an interview that was done by Fly, who is a collaborator of mine, and and her interviews are really great to listen to because she was part of this history too, so she's both an interviewer and a participant in the interview, and you really
4: hear that in this clip. As you know back then, you know, there was so much abandonment, the way you get rid of something is rubble, fucking rubble, hardcore, rubble, as Maggie fucking rubble life you live, a rubble existence. Rubble, rubble, rubble. Yeah, that's, my that's, rubble existence, that was my life. <laughs> my rubble existence, or a life in the rubble, endless seas of rubble. I, I know, it was like just carrying buckets of rubble. Rubble, rubble. Pushing laundry carts of rubble, shoveling rubble, sleeping in the rubble. You
3: know one of the things that I was really interested in was you know, why are people? Why do people think this history is important? Why are they telling these stories? Um, and a lot of the stories are intended in part to illustrate how hard people worked to make these buildings into livable homes. Um, And that comes back to some of the issues I was raising earlier about deservingness um, and the question of who has the rights to these spaces. And a lot of the claims that squatters made were based on how hard they had worked. Um, And a lot of the people who were criticizing them criticized them as lazy, as freeloaders, as people who expected to get something for nothing. Um, And so stories like this I think, even if not explicitly, are intended to refute those arguments and say, like, we might be a lot of things, but lazy is not one of them. Um, the other thing I think you really hear in this clip is the the camaraderie between people who've lived through this, um, and that's something that I think is really exciting about some of the oral histories, particularly the oral histories that Fly collected, is that they not only tell about, but really show what the affective interpersonal experience is of being part of a sort of peak moment of a social movement like this. Those moments are rare. Not all of us ever get to experience them, but for those of us who have, um, it's something that can sort of provide fuel for political action for even decades to come.
0: I do remember, um, and I still think of it sometimes when my alarm clock goes off at 6.30 in the morning these days, that I do remember most all of that time if I had any kind of appointment or anybody was trying to ask me to be somewhere before two o'clock in the afternoon, I was really having to think, man, can I do that? I don't know if that's even possible. It felt like a real impossibility. And that seems so funny to me now, but it was just like straight up. Um, that might as well be the middle of the night, you know? I didn't necessarily sleep all that late. I don't recall sleeping all that late, but it was a time in my life where I didn't use an alarm clock. I slept when I needed to sleep until I was done sleeping.
3: You know, listening to Famous Chrome um, makes me think about, you know, the concept of time-work discipline (laughs) that, um, you know... I'm interested in how people's property relations shape their lives in like really complicated and really subtle sometimes and really deep ways. And, and, you know, part of what happens in New York City when the rents become so high is that this kind of freedom becomes harder and harder to obtain.
1: Hearing about this, hearing about a life that was not structured around the need to make a living was just it really stuck out as this incredibly different life that they were living. And it made me think about how much must have changed for them when they went to the legalization process.
3: There's a sort of typical life cycle that we associate with um, activism is often people who are young, who might not have full-time jobs, or families that are able to throw themselves really deeply into this kind of work. Um, they often then burn out and disappear for a while, might come back when they're you know in their 60s or you know, at another point of their life where they have more time. Um, but there are a good number of people in the squats that have been really involved in activism in New York for decades.
1: Next, we'll hear part of Amy's interview with Nigel Clayton.
3: One of the interesting things about Nigel's um, interview is that he's talking about the way that he's living um, very close to the end of the legalization process where his building has electricity, but because of a dispute that he's in with the power company and with his neighbors, he personally doesn't have electricity. You
2: learn from squatting. You use your daylight hours wisely. Got all night to screw off. If that's your thing, but while you have natural light, get as much done as possible. The lights won't dim around here till about 8:39 ish, so you know, it works out quite well. You know, on those nights if I have someone comes by who wants to hang out a bit, I got a couple of candles I'll light, that provides a nice little ambient lighting in the house. But normally everybody knows Nigel's in bed by 10, so it's 10:15. Don't even bother.
3: It shows the unevenness of the experience of legalization um, and that for him, um, it meant a really marked um, decrease in his quality of life.
4: It's been two years and all I get is screw you. You know, this is our building, we'll do what we want to it. You either pay us or you get out. We don't care that you lived here for 15 years before us ever coming here. We don't care that you were able to make a go of it before us ever coming here. We are the new owners. We are the landlord. We decide what goes on in this apartment. We decide what the apartment looks like. Your history, none of that means nothing. Pay us or get out. So in that, no. I, I think that the you have thing is just,
2: I was better off as a squatter.
3: Um, He had a real, really tough time, um, making the financial, um, moves that were required, um, partially because of these conflicts and, you know, outstanding bills and things like that. Um, and eventually lost his home, um, was evicted by his neighbors. There definitely were people who were not able to make that transition. And there were also people who lived in the squats and had been working full time for a long time and it wasn't a big deal for them. And there were people who, made the transition at a pretty great personal cost. Um, And often that was a cost to their creative lives or their political lives that had been sustained by the property relations of squatting.
1: Um can you talk a little about some of the major conflicts that played out over time?
3: So there were you know, there were other squatting movements in New York City that had that were sort of more centrally organized and that had sort of the clear goal of getting legal rights to use and oftentimes to own the property that they were occupying. Whereas on the Lower East Side, people were in it for a much broader array of reasons and they didn't have any kind of central organizing body or central um spokesperson, central speaking voice. Um, And so there were people in the buildings who modeled themselves after homesteaders and very much wanted to become homeowners, um, wanted the approval of the city, um, wanted to act respectable. Um, And there were other people who were doing this as a critique of private property. Um, There were people who were fixing up their spaces as if it was going to be their family home for generations. And there were people who just needed a temporary place to stay and were making the best of it and people in all kinds of positions in between. Um, And so there were several um, attempts before this deal was reached to make a deal with the city to legalize these buildings. Um, And up until the late 1990s, the people in the buildings weren't really able to reach a consensus that it was a good idea to try to legalize, um, because they realized that they would lose some of the freedom that they had, um, and have to make pretty significant compromises. So Um, The negotiations for the uh, deal that I studied started in 1999 um, And they took three years in secret, which is amazing and the deal was announced in 2002 um, And it seems like there was a big enough majority of people that wanted to do it that it went through But it was not in any way unanimous So there were certainly people living in the buildings at that time that didn't want to legalize And there were a lot of people who I think would have preferred not to legalize, but didn't see any better option, um, and so felt kind of forced into it in that way. Um, And so that meant that as the buildings were entering this long and difficult process um, of becoming co-ops, they weren't entering with sort of a broad mandate among the people living in them to really engage enthusiastically in this process. Um, And so that led to conflicts over, um, you know, really how much people were willing to give up to go legal.
1: A lot of the conflict focused on the degree to which squatters were willing to interact with the city government. This was an issue even before legalization. Here are Rolando Politi, David Boyle, Fly, and Arrow, talking about the different ways squatters interacted with the community board.
2: We were like promoting, you know, we were starting a homestead at 539 and 541, East 13th Street, we have a homestead program, we're going to the community board next month, we're on the agenda.
5: And then this process of the the community board, we got them to come up with, uh, they made a form that you would check out for uh, getting approval from the community board. It was starting to shape up to be uh, a ground-up process that looked great. And then, uh, we got a couple of the uh, kind of punk squatter buildings, and then didn't go for that process. Didn't like what we were doing. Uh, disrupted the community board meetings. Not going before them, but not only that, actually going in and making the meeting impossible to to carry on.
1: Like we had the plan to shut it down, but when it came to be that moment, it's like everybody was like frozen up, and like you didn't know who was gonna go or was it gonna happen or was it gonna. There was all these cops, and there was all. This, and, uh, and I was the one who jumped up and was like, you're not going to vote. We're going to shut this down, blah, blah, blah. And, like, and like people followed. But I got singled out, and I got beaten the shit out of well, that. you did get to, singled to,
4: out. I was there. I witnessed to, the whole thing. Yeah. And, and you so, did. I mean, you were the one who stood up and just said, like, I mean, there was silence. It was like a pin could drop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they were, like. Even though were, there was, like, 500 people well, in the room, right? I mean, it was such a shock, though, because, because there were so many more people to speak. Right. You no. Know? Right. All of a sudden, the guy stands up and says, "The public okay, speaking we're, time we're is over now." The public speaking time. And everybody right. Was just, right. Because the thing was, right. I, and I, I remember, said, "No, you were not shutting yeah. this down.
1: We're still going to speak, motherfucker." Yeah.
4: So then you jumped up, and but then so, like, after you jumped up, I remember all hell broke, broke loose. loose. The was, smoke like, bombs, the the, the fire bombs, alarms got bombs. pulled. Like lights went off. Yeah. The cops were yeah.
5: And then uh, you couldn't even get to a community board meeting after that. There was no uh, process from that point on. And that was the intention of the anarchist element, to take uh, a regularization of what we call homesteading and to, to make an openly hostile uh, environment that was called squatting and had no uh, intention of uh, any interaction with the government.
1: So what do you think or what do some of the squatters think would are going to be some of the long-term implications of the legal Legalization process.
3: It definitely set a precedent, and it wasn't the first thing to do this, but it, it really deepened the precedent that it is possible to illegally occupy and use direct action to defend city-owned property, and then translate that into getting legal property rights um, that are permanent. Um, and so that's that's a big deal for other people that are squatting. Um, I think that the sort of critical mass in terms of Size and the willingness to use direct action to resist eviction um, on the Lower East Side is something that hasn't really been seen again since then. Now, the squatters are sort of the old timers on the Lower East Side um, alongside all of the other old timers that have been there from all different kinds of other migrations and movements and generations Um, and so they're experiencing the same thing people are in other neighborhoods they have you know pretty stable housing most of them who have stuck around Um, but their neighborhood doesn't necessarily feel like their neighborhood anymore in a lot of ways you know now we have these buildings and and there's you know if we all moved out and other
0: people moved in you know what are they they have no emotional connection to this building. I, I am like, my blood is in this building, you know? And it's like, it's such an intense thing to, to work so hard and, and fight so hard for, for your space. It's not just about the physical space. It's about, it's about being in, in control of your living Space you're living, um, you know not not just the space, but how you live and and you know who you're interacting with and who you choose as your community. It's so many people just don't
4: understand this.
6: The city I think was forced you know to make this um, create this program especially for us. And what, they were probably just like, what are we gonna do with these people? They won't leave. They're not gonna buy the buildings you know, they're not going to just someday show up and say, here's a million dollars. We'd like to purchase our building. So they they created this thing where they could, I mean, in a way it seems cool, but at the same time, I think the way they set it up for us is they're kind of like trying to set us up for failure or at least weed out the bad seeds, you know. And get rid of the bad apples and only keep the real responsible ones who can work and make money and give them money. Pay taxes. I think that's what they did. It might be a big trick. Who knows? Because the way I see it, we were all just a bunch of squatters. And we didn't want those responsibilities to begin with. So how are they going to turn squatters into responsible citizens?
4: I am a homeowner, and it's incredible. And, uh, you know, as long as we keep our act together, then nobody can put us out, you know. And that's it. We we got it, you know. we it's our, it's our building. It's ours to lose, really. The squats used to be places where, you know, everybody could find a home and everybody could could survive. And, you know, you could you could get credit for your, you know, sweat equity, and, and that would be as valid as anything else. And that is no longer... A criteria now the criteria is paying our mortgage and you know and keeping the paperwork together and and getting you know the reports in and getting the you know the 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 yearly meetings you know audited and and all this stuff and that's a very different you know thing it has its own set of problems but it's there's a lot of the freedom is gone yeah, for sure
1: You just heard the voices of Fly, Jeff Dan, and Maggie Wrigley. If you're interested in learning more about squatting on the Lower East Side, Amy's book, Hours to Lose, is a complete history of the legalization process. You can also check out a list of resources on our blog. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.